0: So let me start out with a riddle This will be kind of like being in class So you don't, you don't have to raise your hand I'm going to tell you the riddle And then you shout out the answer And don't take my sermon answer Because that'll kind of ruin all this, okay? Alright, so the, here's the riddle What is more useful when it's broken? What is more useful or more mal... Yeah? A car? No, yeah, no I thought I was clear about the sermon Not taking the sermon answer Thank you and egg, that—yeah, that, the most—if you go on the internet, the official answer is egg. Also, other good answers—any nut, right? Um, or glow sticks. That's, that's on a, a, a mommy parenting blog. There's apparently five billion of those in America now. And um, this is one fun thing to do with your kids, and they probably won't get some horrible chemically-induced disease. Um, but the, the answer that actually occurred to me first— was actually a horse, right? You can't do anything with them until they're broken, right, rideable. And then once you do, I mean, the world was won and lost for like a thousand plus years. Well, more like probably 4,000 years uh, by horseback, right? Um, There's some things that just—they're not useful until they're broken. And if you think about Psalm 51, one of the most central verses here that really lays out not only what the whole Psalm is about, but the whole Bible is about— is in verses 16 and 17, where David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Right? And, and normally we don't use those sayings in, with positive connotations, right? Like w- w- if you go to like parenting class here at High Point Church, um, Ellen is not going to get up in front of the class and be, okay, now th- what we're going to learn today is how to break your child's spirit. Like, that's not, right, that's not normally a connotation we want, right? Or if you, if you just think of like how people normally use the term being, having a broken heart, we don't go, oh, that's a wonderful thing, right? So it, basically that means like debilitating emotional pain from broken love, right? It's not—and it'd be like, well, that's what God wants. God wants a crushed, emotionally stunted person who is debilitated from caring about everybody or anybody because they're so hurt. Right? You're like, can I come to this church more? Can we have more worship services? Right? I mean, you gotta ask the question, what does this mean? I mean, what—I mean, think about this. This verse is saying that what God does not want is— most centrally is what he commands he wants— Right? There's a contrast here. God commanded these sacrifices to be made, but poetically he's saying, so much do you want this thing that I can say before it? you don't even want this thing that you said we had to do. So much do you want this one thing. There's one thing that God requires of human beings for salvation and only one thing. There's only one thing he will not despise. He will move toward emotionally. He will not reject emotionally. And it is... Oh, I think I pushed the button without meaning to. It is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So it, like, it makes a little bit of sense to want to figure out what that means, right? I should tell you here up front that this sermon is going to actually be two sermons, because it is. One of the things I love about October, if I could get rid of Halloween, I would. And not because um, of its Druidic British past, but because I think it would just be more fun to celebrate Reformation Day. And and that would just feel like, we we could dress up like Martin Bucer and, you know, Luther and Calvin and Katerina von Bora brewing beer. I mean, that would be fun, right? I mean, but, but it's, I mean, it gets totally overshadowed by Halloween, which is a huge disappointment to me. And because it was on October 30th that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis in Latin on the Wittenberg church door, and then some German wag pulled it down, went and translated it into German, printed it on this new invention called the printing press, and sent it all over Germany, starting the Reformation, right? But most people, even though they're you know, if you're in this church, hey, we're we're Protestants, right? Um, How many have actually read and remember anything about the 95 Thesis? It's public domain. You can read it for free on the internet, right? The very first one that encapsulates really everything Luther thought he had learned about the gospel, which is the basis on which he was going to argue against indulgences, was this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance. Thirty years later, on his deathbed, the last thing he ever wrote down that we know of was on a little scrap of paper he wrote in German, we are beggars, this is true. Which is really two ways of saying the same thing. The person who is recognizes that the whole Christian life is repentance. That is, saying, I'm wrong, you're right, please help me means that the character and identity of every human is that this is true. We are beggars. Which led Luther to summarize Christian faith this way. All of life is repentance. If, if you want to understand Christian spirituality, how is Christian spirituality different from all the other religious spiritualities? What makes Christianity Christianity? If I want to live as a Christian, what's the first thing I need to understand and know? What does it mean to live out Christian faith? Just here's a sentence. You could you could memorize this right now and carry it away with you. All of life is repentance. Now I think a lot of people struggle but that's probably too simple, right? Okay, Nick, that's how you become a Christian, you believe in Jesus, you repent of your sins and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and then you're a Christian, and then you learn how to be godly, right? Well, sort of and sort of not. I mean, think about this really famous passage on Christian spirituality from Romans 12, right? This is for—this is not about how to get saved. This is about how to be a Christian. You're already in, right? Right? And it says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and to approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Right? So what's the context there? It's naturally we're conformed to the world and culture around us. We have to get unconformed to that. We're not fun little unconformed individuals. We are already conformists to the sinful God-denying world around us. We have to unconform from that, and the means by which that is going to happen is our minds have to get transformed to see the things of God. Then we'll understand what God's will is. We will like it, and we will then—our will and God's will will be— Paralleled and we can walk out What God wants for us You see how that has to do with an internal change of mind Now if that's going to happen What does that mean is going to happen over and 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 and over Over and over and over This I'm wrong You're right Turns out again. Turns out again, I'm wrong, you're right. What is that a way of saying? Repentance and faith. If Christian spirituality is walking out unconforming, to that which does not submit to love and honor and walk with the will of God and being transformed by the renewing of our mind to that end, it means that not only coming to Jesus or to Christian faith is repentance and faith, it means that all of Christianity is a process of repentance and faith. Does that make sense? Go because the rest of the sermon— so th- there's this saying— there's this saying that I think should pretty much be banned From the English language But I don't think anybody should be doing that kind of thing So it's still there But almost every time I hear it said It just annoys the heck out of me Because it's totally false It's, it's used in philosoph- philosophically terrible ways the, thing, the two things are two sides of the same coin Have you ever heard that? Oh my gosh, I just want to hit myself in the head with a hammer when people say that. For most people, what, this, what two sides of the same coin means is, I don't want to argue about this, and I don't want to expend mental energy to come to a clearer understanding of it. So I'm just going to pretend that there's no built-in disagreement to the thing, and we'll just agree to say it's two sides of the same coin. We're saying something that's totally different, but we'll just pretend we're saying the same thing in different ways. Right? But there there is actually a way to use that right, and it actually works here. Something that's two sides of the same coin is, it is the negative way to say the positive thing. It is the thing that has to be emptied so the other can be filled. It is the thing that, to the proportion you do the one, you by definition do the other. That's really two sides of the same coin, which is what we're talking about here. Because what repentance is— is removing our trust from ourselves. That's what it is. It's to say, I'm not fundamentally trustworthy. I'm not going to go with my thing on this. I'm probably wrong. In fact, I'm definitely wrong. And faith is to say, turns out you're right. I'm going to go with you on this. God, I'm going to trust you. And you see, you can't do the latter without the former. It assumes. That's why— Christians talk about, you know, the the old-school way of saying becoming a Christian. I'm going to repent of my sins and trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord, right? Last 50 years, that's been like this, right? Well, why? Why not just say trust Jesus as Savior and Lord? Because you actually have to do the negative to do the positive. You've got to empty out what you're going to fill up. You've got to recognize that the two are intrinsically related, and you can't have faith without repenting by definition— they're two sides of the same coin. Now, if we recognize that the Christian life is the life of repentance, one of the things we're going to need to recognize is that the life of repentance requires a disciplined disposition of response. That's what, that's what a lifestyle of repentance is going to look like. It's, it's going to be a disposition. That is, a disposition is something that's formed into your character so that you react that way. Okay, So like if, if, if somebody says something— every time they criticize you, somebody criticizes you, you just get mad. You don't even know why. You just know when somebody criticizes you, you just tend to get offended and you get mad and you fight. Right? Other people, well, they, they don't do that, right? Other people, they just get hurt. And it's like every time they get criticized, it's, they do that thing, right? It's because it's your character disposition. And so if, if we want to be— live a lifestyle of repentance, we need to, we need to have a disposition of repentance. That needs to be thinking When we get bumped, that, that's what comes out. And in order for that to happen, we need to recognize that there has to be this responsiveness toward God. That's how we react. We, re- we act by responding towards God in a certain way. Repentance and faith. It's responsive. It's active. And secondly, it has to be disciplined. If it's going to become part of our character, if it's going to be a lifestyle, if it's going to be who we are, it's got to be disciplined. And I'm going to talk about the response part this week and the other one next time. Um, This psalm is kind of a clinic in repentance as a response, which is helpful because what's the only thing Jesus couldn't model for us? (laughs) I mean, think about it. The only thing Jesus couldn't model for us is repentance because he didn't sin. And so it's very helpful that there is this psalm, for example, and other people in the Bible that repented, so that we can see what that looks like. And this is probably the clearest, most profound, most worked out, and therefore most well-known repentance in the scriptures. Five components I think we need to pay attention to. Now, that's not to say if you haven't done these, you've never really repented. It's just to say that if you want to build this into your character and you want to repent completely and you want to really live this out as responsibly as possible, then you need to pay attention to these five things. And it's in your little bulletin thing. Now, you'll probably want to keep this the rest of your life because it's just— but keep it for at least the next few weeks so that you'll have it when we do the second half of it. But the first is, it is not repentance until there is absolute admittance and affirmation that you did something terrible. Right? That what you did was wrong. You you have to actually admit you're wrong when you admit you're wrong. I mean okay, who's ever had a terrible apology given to them? Right? Who's ever given a terrible apology? Yeah. It's not right, you know, when it's happening, right? You don't feel any better. Right, Um, uh, apology. It's kind of like I remember. I remember the first time I read a book when um, I was reading a book on parenting, and the the author said, "When you discipline your child, they should feel terrible." I remember thinking, "Yeah, no, duh, right? Why have I parented for seven years and not known that?" Right? When you apologize, you should feel like an idiot. You should feel terrible. You should admit you did something wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't be apologizing. That's what an apology is. And one of the things that you see very clearly in this psalm is that David doesn't really hold anything back. He calls things what it is, right? He refers to his actions as sin, transgression, iniquity, like straying from the path, incurring moral guilt, intentionally and deliberately disobeying God, hurting— I mean, he he just—he's very creative, with his language about how terrible his actions were. And it's personal. It's not like he said, well, I didn't act optimally. It's very personal. He says, I did this. Right? Then he turns to God and he said, I did this to you. Right? And so focused is he about it. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, that's, that's not literally true, right? That's poetically true. What he's saying is, in comparison, this is absolutely about you. Like, there's all these people that I've hurt. There's this wreckage of people in my life because of what I just has done. But still, in comparison, it is you that I've sinned against. You being God. And he recognizes that this is not just, well, I made a mistake. We had an unhelpful episode. But I'm normally a fabulous person. No, right? He says, surely I was sinful from birth, from the time my mother conceived me. Now, we all may want to use that as a theological proof text that depravity starts in the womb, but that's not David's point, is it? David's point is, he's been bad his whole life. He's a bad person. This is not an unhelpful event that just sort of happened as a contingency of circumstances because he didn't have any better options. A little moment of weakness where he had a dis- indiscretion. Right? He's saying, no, I've always been terrible. And then the next verse, it says, right, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Now, that could be a metaphorical comparison of the womb with our most inner places, right? In the womb, he was wicked. In our inmost place, he teaches wisdom. Or it may be a reference to even in the womb, God was already present in showing him what he should be like. And therefore, his sinfulness from birth is not God's fault. It is totally his fault and his problem, and his responsibility. And this action is totally on him. Do you see how there's this complete acceptance and clear statement? One of the the rules that I hold for myself is, whenever I apologize, I try to apologize about 200 times percent more. 200% more than I think the offense requires. Because I figure, just out of pride and self-justification, I'm going to undershoot by about 70%. Okay. So I'm going to undershoot how much I really ought to apologize. So I got to overshoot just to get to reasonable, right? And then I probably need to go a good bit beyond that because for relational and emotional reasons, right? I've only just just now got to the truth, but further will help my heart and make the other person feel valued, which is what I'm going for if I have to apologize. Right? So after I've said what I've done, then I'd say, okay, now it's time to get more specific about how terrible I am and how they didn't deserve this. Right? So it's like—and and that's not just—I didn't just do that. This is a defect in me that I haven't dealt with, that I've let sit there, and that will produce this again. And I'm sorry—and I, I teach my kids to do that because it has to be done. Because if I undershoot, if I go, well, I'll just apologize. I'm going to undershoot, and what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to do the second thing that isn't there, right? And that is, I'm not going to take full guilt. I'm going to shift. I'm going to do something. And that's one of the things you don't see any of in this psalm. There's no guilt shifting. There's no shared blame. There's no— One of the things that um, Matthew commentators point out about the book of Matthew is that in the genealogy of Jesus, there are three women mentioned— One is Rahab, the prostitute. The other is Ruth. And the third is Bathsheba, the woman that David committed adultery with, which produced this psalm. Bathsheba is the only one of the three that is not mentioned by name. Rahab is mentioned by name, right? Ruth is mentioned by name. So you have a prostitute, right? You have a foreigner, a motobitist, from a group of people that the Jews hated. And then you've got—and here's all—here's what it says. And his mother, Solomon's mother, had been Uriah's wife. No mention of her name. Most New Testament scholars argue that this is evidence that it was understood that Bathsheba had plenty of complicity in the affair as well as David. That she was no Boy Scout, so to speak. Um... But—so you, you could imagine David's attitude being something like, you know what, like, I didn't make her bathe on the roof, or, like, I, yeah, I had 13 wives, but they weren't being any fun, or do you know how much pressure it is to rule a kingdom that has, like, three huge kingdoms all around it, all threatening at any moment to come and kill all of us? Like, I, I was a little stressed out. Or, you know, my, I've seen my officers have affairs, and, like, I'm supposed to be this perfect one. Like, you could—you could imagine a person in David's position— to be like, you know, I had help. You don't—read the psalm. There's none of that in there. There's none of that in there. But we tend to be conformed to our culture rather than transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I would submit to you that there's a whole lot of that in us. There's always just this attitude in us that like, well— It was because what that person did, and this happened to me, and I was in that situation, and I didn't get enough sleep, and I was glucose depleted. You've heard of the Twinkie defense, right? Like, I mean, there's no, there's no, it's like there's no reason that is too bad to use for why I did this. But it's so ingrained in us. And therefore, we don't just have to say, well, I probably shouldn't do that much. We have to actively, in a disciplined and constant way, reject it. Because it's always pouring in through cracks in our character The third is to actually ask for forgiveness it's, it's not enough to just say, oh God is loving And so, whatever, God will forgive me No, 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 no. It's important because God gives forgiveness You don't get forgiveness because you said you did, you did, did something wrong That isn't the forgiveness. The forgiveness is given from God on the basis of the sacrifice, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then God gives forgiveness. And you and I have to—need to ask for it. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've already been a Christian, that every time you do something stupid, you lose your salvation and then you try to get it back. That's not the case. But continued repentance is necessary for us— and, it, it, and it's useful to, re, to ask for God's forgiveness. In fact, if you look at this psalm, this is how the psalm starts. David being really clear about, this is why this whole poem exists. This is God, him pleading to God, who he already believes in and already knows, to forgive him. Right? Verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sins. It's important, you've got to recognize what is the basis on which David is asking to be forgiven. Right? It's not all of his years of obedience in the desert. It's not that he's been a good man most of his life. It's not that he's fought battles for the, in the name of God or something to save the people of Israel. It's none of that stuff. It's, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see? He's not saying, I've done these things, or I'm going to say this, and then you're going to respond like that. He's saying, um, I, on the, I believe that you, God, are compassionate and merciful and loving— and i'm hoping that when i come to you in repentance you're going to you're going to forgive me because you're good compassionate and loving it's really important to get you're familiar with the cliche love the sinner hate the sin or i'm sorry aphorism or principle whatever look what is that right love the sinner hate the sin is that right Right, It it is. It is right. But on what basis is it right? Right? Theologically, on what basis can you say, I'm going to live according to this maxim, love the sinner, hate the sin? Right? Is that true about you and me? Right? See, theologically, the reason why that is right is because it's our job— to do everything we can to help people in terms of their fundamental identity to separate themselves and their identity from their sin. Right? In order for redemption to happen, the sin and the sinner have to get daylight between them somehow. There has to be this disjunction between the sin and the person's being and their connection with each other. There's only one way for that to happen. How, how does a person's self get disconnected from part of their fundamental human condition? How is that going to happen? Because when you look at the biblical doctrine of salvation and the biblical doctrine of damnation, human beings get redeemed or destroyed, not just their sins, but themselves, right? Redemption happens to us, or damnation happens to us, not just to our sins, right? So how, how does this happen? You see, there's only one way that a person who's in a particular condition can be separated from it when they're infected by it. There's only one—repentance, right? To say, it's in me, and I don't want it to be in me. It it creates a psychological and spiritual daylight between the self— and the condition in a way that the two can be divided, and one can be taken away and the other redeemed. And so we function in relationship to everybody God has called us to love, and we can love the sinner and hate the sin because it's our job to seek to help them to get to the place where repentance can come and that daylight can be created and sin can be forgiven and the person can be redeemed and there can be redemption. It's the Same reason—the same reason why repentance is so necessary for us— How does redemption come to somebody who's in a sinful condition, who on some level loves their sin, who in a lot of ways really just wants to be their own person and not rely on God and not come to him and not— Right? How do we get the two apart? And how do we believe if we recognize, like David, that our heart has been like this since before we were even born? And yet it's not—it's not something that we can get out of the responsibility of. We love it. How do we get split from it so that God can destroy one, take one away as far as the east is from the west, completely obliterate one, and not us? There's only one thing. Repentance does that. Repentance divides the sinful condition from the divine nature. It creates the the division between where we are as sinners and what God created us to be originally in his image such that we renounce the sinful condition. That's what repentance is. It's, I don't want to be like this. Please take this part of me away from me. I don't want it. That's what repentance is in us. And that is what repentance is in everyone And if our job is to function and work for redemption In all people Then by definition that's what we do We love the sinner That is the placement in the, in the being of the divine image the, the God's image in people Recognizing that only they Can be led by God To create this redemptive daylight Between their sinful condition and their divine nature Such that salvation can come And the sin can be taken away And obliterated in the cross And the person can be forever redeemed I think that if you understand it that way, that ridiculous cliche can be an exactly right definition of what Christians are called to do in the culture. Unapologetically. So that we can be radically accepting in a certain kind of way, and yet not compromise our deepest convictions about how redemption comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to all who will believe. The fourth is to actually ask for restoration, right? Forgiveness is past. I did this. Will you forgive me? But then there's also this question of, what do you need now? Do you have that? How do you get rolling again? I mean, what, what do you actually need? And the assumption here that David makes is, is that what he needs, he doesn't have. And so these are, the, these are the most famous verses in the psalm, right? Create in me a pure heart of God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, there's a number of Christians I've heard who, who kind of don't like the, the um, don't take your presence or your Holy Spirit from me because their argument is that's an Old Testament prayer, that's not a New Testament prayer. Once you come to Jesus, you're saved, God gives you a spirit, you're in, you belong to Him, and He doesn't just pull it away every time you screw up. And that's true. But at the same time, you've got to remember, that's not what David's saying either. That's not his point. His point is that now that this thing has happened, and now that he's come to God to repent, now what? What does he need the most? What is the absolute number one thing he needs to happen to him? And inside of him— In his own psychology, in his own soul, in his own spirit, his own inner David, what he needs is a heart that that wills one thing. He needs purity. He needs to not love Jesus and naked women he can see from his porch. He needs one thing. He needs to will, to love, honor, serve, and follow God. He needs a pure heart. And notice he says, he doesn't say, I'm going to do a better job with this. He turns to God and he asks for an act of creation. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then he recognizes that outside of himself, the thing he needs the most is God. Right? Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Which is actually the second time he says that because earlier, you know how he says, turn your face from my sin? What is that a reference to? Right? He says he asks God to blot out his transgression and to turn his face away from sin. Both have to do with the gaze. Right? So if you blot something out, it's like you wrote it in sharpie marker and you can't actually erase it. Right? All you can do is like color in the whole page. So you can't see the writing anymore. It's still kind of there, but it's all black now. Right? Or turn your face—I mean, David isn't saying, don't talk to me ever again. Don't look at me ever again. I don't want—what is he saying? right? Have you ever had—I mean, I don't know about you. You've probably never betrayed anybody, so let's just use my personal experience, okay? I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you had to tell somebody, basically, that you betrayed them. You did something that really hurt them, and you had to tell them because you couldn't keep it a secret. They were going to find out, or you wanted to have a real relationship, or something like that. And so you tell them, and they don't say anything, right? And what's the very next thing that you want to say? Don't look at me like that. Right? Have you ever said that? If you haven't said that, I don't know what to tell you. That's a— Good for you. But I've had that experience more than once. Where you tell somebody something, and they're pretty much speechless, and you really did do that thing, and they just look at you with that, I can't believe you did this rage, frustration Anger, betrayal, this just total— and you have no idea if this relationship is going to exist again or if it's just straight over or what. And I've had people say this in my office to their spouse or whatever. I mean, I, and I've said this in my own life. Don't look at me like that, right? That there's, this, there's this desire after you have to confess that you're a betrayer, where they're looking at you and the thing you want the most is for them to be able to look at you the way they used to look at you and not the way they're looking at you right now turn your face from my sins blot out my transgressions don't leave me the thing i need the most is for there to be a relationship between that's the that's what my that's what a pure heart desires that's what a, good, a heart after god wants that's that is the one thing necessary for all restoration and redemption that God would not leave us. And whether or not you theologically believe that's imminent every time you sin, we should psychologically and poetically and emotionally recognize that the one great desire we should have when seeking to come into restoration with God is that we would have God. And then he points to the future. And he begins to celebrate a vision of a redeemed future already. He's not even done with a psalm yet, right? Which is a little presumptuous, isn't it? Right? I mean, he did, he did, you know, have an affair, kill somebody, and do a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you know, to think that he can be like, so, just repented, things are going to be good. Right? That's a little—I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but— there were a couple times where my, I, I found out my, my daughter, my oldest daughter in this case, did something, and it was bad, you know, for her age. And um, she was going she, she to have to tell me. And, you um, know, it was like something at school or something like that. And she came up to me, and I knew she was going to tell me the thing. And I could tell, like, she was really distraught, you know. She's like, oh my gosh, my daddy's going to kill me, you know. And it might have been because I was cleaning my gun or something, but— um, <laughs> But there were a couple times where I knew how bad it was, and I I said to her before she repented, sweetie, when you're done repenting, I'm going to accept you. I'm going to accept your apology, and I'm going to hug you. Now go ahead and do what you need to do. Because I think it's bad parenting to jump in there and save them from having to apologize. I don't think it's good to teach a kid not to repent. I think you should teach a kid to repent, Right? But sometimes it's actually helpful that they know the outcome before, right? Is it? I mean, it's, it's the most terrifying thing for most parents to know that the, their kid did something against them and they won't come to them. As bad as it is that they choose not to come to them rather than to do so, right? You're, the kid has to know that after the— Repentance and all that—that the outcome is still better with the parent than not. And see, here's one of the things that's so important about repentance is God has over and over and over and over and over and over again done that for us. And it's—and here's here's I think part of the reason because we're that alienated from Him. Our betrayals are that bad. I mean, think about weddings. Like, why do we do those, right? People don't really do them anymore because nothing means anything anymore, right? But th- there was a day when weddings were a big deal, right? And, and if you if you fall into the whole marketing scam with weddings, you know, you really can spend a lot of money. But, I mean, it used to be that, like, Almost all weddings, you did to do some nice dress that was picked out that nobody saw, and people wore tuxedos or suits, and they came to the church, and you dressed up the church, and you put flowers that were going to die like the next day that you paid lots of money for, and then you had this formal occasion, and you had a minister, and there was all this, right? I mean, why do we, why do, we do that? And the whole, the whole thing was, how do you say I really, really mean something to someone Especially if it's a promise they've got to carry with them a really long time. Right? I mean, how many realies can you put in front of something? You know, you've got mean this, and then what do you say in front of it? You get—so you just spend $14,000 or $270,000 to try to make it big enough, right? And you see, in, in one sense, Christ's death on the cross— is first and foremost his death for our sins. It is a sacrifice. It's not communication. It is payment. But abstractly, Jesus could have died on the cross on Mars. Right? I mean, he had had to die for our sins, but this way, which— I mean, why the way he did and the time he did in front of the people he did, and why three years of ministry before it, and why all that leading up to it, and why the inscripturation of it after it, and what— Well, it's because it didn't just— Do something sacrificially It made a statement humanly It said Before you even decide whether or not You want to come to Jesus For the first time or for the 500th time Before you ever even think about doing that Here's what you need to know I'm going to accept it I'm going to take it And here's how formal it is the eternal Son of God is going to become a human being and be crucified and murdered in the most painful and terrible way human beings ever came up with. And then, to make it even more sure that he's even more serious, he's going to be raised from the dead to demonstrate God's acceptance of that sacrifice. And the cross and the resurrection together to demonstrate the reality of the teaching that Jesus provided is meant to say beforehand, it works. It works. You come to him and he'll accept you. He does have that steadfast love. It is there. It is real. And so if you come and you repent, even in the repentance, it's actually good for you to start thinking about the future because God is going to forgive. He is going to restore. There is going to be a future. Right? There's this, there's this funnier, you might say silly little contradiction in the, in the passage, right? Right? where he's coming to the end. He's talking about the future. He says, In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Right? Two verses before that, he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Right? This is the exact same language, right? You don't like these? We're going to do this to delight you. But you'd have to be a pretty pedantic person to think that that's a real contradiction, right? It's pretty clear what he means. The one thing God actually requires of people is real repentance. It's a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit, a repentant heart before God. And without that, nothing else matters. There's nothing that can save you, nothing that can help you. You can't add anything to it. You can't go anywhere with it. But— On the other side of that, there's a restored future in which we do all kinds of stuff to worship God, honor God, love God, live in His presence, have relationships and community with each other. And the sacrificial systems were part of that. And so so he's saying, when he's talking about his repentance, he's like, listen, I realize that I could do all kinds of religious stuff, even stuff that you commanded, and it would make a bit of difference. What you want is a repentant heart. You want a broken spirit. But when you restore me and— and you bless me as the king, and you build up Jerusalem and Zion, your people together. We're going to enjoy you. We're going to love you. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have offerings to praise you. And then we're going we're to eat the sacrificial meals together as a community, and there's going to be a good future. And that is a perfectly legitimate theological reflection because of the God he's repenting to. We're going to end today by taking the Lord, what we call the Lord's Supper together, or communion. And it's part of—I mean, it's, the, it's our ritual of repentance that's ongoing, right? We have baptism, right? And baptism is this event where we come for the first time and recognize our death and resurrection, our repentance and faith in Jesus. But Jesus didn't leave it there. He actually instituted another thing we were supposed to do that was a continued remembrance— of repenting and trusting in God. That's what this is. And there's, there's a misunderstanding that sometimes comes up when we do this because people feel like they shouldn't do it because it's kind of, they're kind of unworthy for it. Um, there's a verse that—let um, me see if I can pop forward this. You can pop forward to it. It's in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 29. And it says, essentially, um, If you come to the Lord's table unworthily, you eat and drink condemnation on yourself. And so then it says in the second verse, in verse 28, it says, therefore, everybody before they come should examine themselves so they don't eat the meal unworthily. Now, that can be very confusing to people because people think, oh, there's kind of, I mean, God takes that really seriously. He, you can eat judgment on yourself. And it says that we should come and do so if we don't, if we, Some of the translations are unworthily here. It says, without recognizing the body of the Lord Jesus, right? And so what people do is they remove themselves from the Lord's Supper. And that is absolutely and exactly the opposite of what this verse means. Because when you—if you believe in Jesus, if you don't take this ritual to remember Christ's death and resurrection for you, you are rejecting the idea that God saves you freely— Because what you're implicitly stating is that you believe there is something more required of you than admitting that you're wrong and putting your trust in Him. Something you've got to go do, something you've got to go earn, something you've got to go be. And when you believe that, you absolutely wholesale reject the message of salvation. The message of salvation is you bring nothing. Nothing. You have no resource of you. Truly, we are beggars in Luther's terms. And you see, what Paul is saying is, is, that what you have to do before you come is you have to examine yourself. You see what he's saying? He's saying there's nothing that can't happen right this second that is required to come, truly. What does that mean? What's required? What's the examination? It's repentance, right? It's, I'm doing this sin and I love it, and I don't want to love it anymore. All that's necessary is that psychological moment where you turn it loose. You let it go. That's all that's necessary. And if you'll do that, you can do that in a moment this second. And that's repentance and faith. And if you won't, it has nothing to do with going away and doing better and any of that kind of stuff. It just is the fact that you don't want to repent and you don't want to have faith, which means you probably shouldn't take the ritual that demonstrates our repentance and faith in trusting in Jesus. And there's only one other thing related to that, and that is this. There's only one thing Jesus ever said, only one sin that Jesus ever said could invalidate your salvation if you trust him. There's only one. You know what it is? Not forgiving others, right? That's the only sin in the Bible— explicitly stated, where Jesus said, say whatever you want about your repentance and faith and how much you love God and how much you've accepted this and how much you live by the redemptive dynamics of the gospel. You choose not to forgive someone else and your salvation is forfeit. I mean, it literally says, your father in heaven will forgive your sins if you forgive others. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Why is that? You see, it's very clear because that's a denial of the gospel. It's to say repentance and faith does not save. It doesn't. That's wrong. God is totally wrong. The cross does nothing. Because if you believe there is somebody who's done anything to you that requires something more than repentance and faith to belong to God— That is, you have some claim beyond that on them. You are invalidating the concept that salvation by faith is just how it works. And if salvation by faith doesn't work for them, it doesn't work for you. You see? If they—because if you won't forgive, you're essentially implicitly assuming something else has to be done for you and to you for that person to rightly be released— Besides them repenting to God and God releasing them on the, on the basis of the cross. If that's true about them, it's true about you. And salvation by grace doesn't work for you. Do you see how that works? That's why you, you can't hold it on anybody. And if you think you've forgiven somebody and you're not sure, let me just ask you this. When we have our time of reflection, try to pray to bless them. Try to pray and ask God to bless that person. That their life would go well. That their heart would be right with God. That, that things would go good for them. That they'd have love and community and all the things that they've deprived you of in your mind. And if you can do that, you've probably forgiven them. And if you can't, you probably haven't. And you should. Right now, And it's not just giving forgiveness. It's seeking it. If you know somebody won't forgive you, think about what love requires. What does grace require? If you really believe that, if you really believe that, you would say, it's their job to forgive. But if, if that is what redemption requires, why would I not do everything possible to help them come to that point? You see, in, in another sense, seeking forgiveness From someone else Is almost as important It's different in terms of responsibility You're responsible to forgive those who've sinned against you It's other people's responsibility That you've sinned against to forgive you But think about what Jesus did How far did he go To help people Who themselves had to come to repentance To draw them to it Does that make sense? So when we examine ourselves There's nothing there's no there's nothing that has to happen that can't happen right this second. Let it go. Forgive. Repent. Trust Jesus. Ask him to help you to create a pure heart. Think about a future that'll bring. Don't blame shift. Accept what you've really done. Be free of it. Be free of it and you will be free of it. And then receive the elements of remembrance of Christ's broken body and shed blood for you that does everything. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us. We pray that um, we would know what it's like to be, to have that open, unanxious freedom that real repentance brings and that nothing else brings We recognize we come to a generous, loving, helpful, caring teacher and judge and benefactor, and we come as beggars, and we recognize that all of life is repentance, and we recognize that our implicit in that has to be forgiveness. And we recognize, Father, that um, there are some things And our hearts and our souls are one of those things that aren't useful until they're broken. And we trust, Father, that a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart will never be despised by you, but will always be embraced by you. Help us to enjoy and celebrate this in the Lord's Supper. Amen.